Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are about a quarter of the way through. Let's do this. I'm joking. Take your seats. Don't stand on my account, although it's kind of you. No, are we here for a short service or are we here to experience Jesus together and see him working in people's lives? Yes? Yes. I just want to say, after hearing those testimonies, I I just got to say, if you don't know Jesus, then you will have no satisfaction. Like, yeah, hearing those testimonies, like, those are stories of God changing people's lives. And if you're sitting here and you're frustrated because you just can't figure it out, you can't get any satisfaction, you can't make it on your own, then they've told you the answer. The answer is Jesus, and it's Jesus alone. So if you want to learn more about Jesus... Um, just listen to the service, listen to the testimonies, come and speak to us afterwards because we'd love to uh, help you learn a bit more about Jesus. But welcome everyone, I'm really glad for those of you that could join us here today, all the friends and family, the guests, that's fantastic that you can be here. Um, Even if you had to move all of the young people into the middle rows and all of the middle-aged people into the old rows and the old... Sorry, I know there's a lot of rejigging going on, but I'm really glad that you all could be here. Uh, My name is Kyle, Uh, for those of us who haven't had a chance to meet. Um, Today we are diving back into a series that we started a few weeks ago, um, and it's uh, been sort of interwoven through other series that we've been doing. Um, If you would have connected with us over the recent period, you would know that we just finished up a three-week series on financial discipleship led by Pastor Chi, uh, which was really insightful and just biblically deep teaching. That's really worth a listen if you haven't already. Uh, And then before that is when we actually started our first Corinthians series called The Battle. Uh, You might remember that myself and Pastor Paul and Pastor Sharon um, spoke over those three weeks. Um, As a bit of a recap, I've got some information to share with you at the start before we get into our message, but I hope you can uh, follow along because I think it leads in a good space. But I I did the series intro and I guess I set up the scene, explained how... uh, being spirit-led means living a spirit-led life. Um, how we, we just finished up three months or like 12 weeks or nine weeks or so of this Holy Spirit sort of intense period in our church. Uh, and now if we are to say that we are people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, that means we have to be people who live as if they're being led by the Holy Spirit. Uh, we cannot be low level in our faith if we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, We cannot stay in this sort of infant baby stage of our faith if we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, And we cannot sort of just sit in the shallows. God has a design for our life and how life is to be lived. And as followers of Jesus, we should be moving towards that mature discipleship. Um, And then Pastor Paul uh, covered the topic of human autonomy versus God's authority. Uh, And this message covered who is really in control of us. Uh, The sermon featured some cool drawings by Pastor Paul, um, but it really brought into clarity the the battle that goes on whether God is in the center of our decision-making or whether something else like ourselves uh, is in the center of the decision-making and all the implications of that. Because when we are in the center of our decision-making process, we have the ability to justify a whole range of choices and actions that are not in line with what God has commanded or desired. Um, and then the following week, uh, Pastor Sharon uh, preached on the topic of self, self-help versus God's help. Uh, and this was a really, really great sermon, really insightful into ourselves um, and how God guides us and how God brings wisdom into different areas of our life. 
which is really worth a listen and a watch. It also included some photos and trips, uh, photos of our trips overseas, and maps of like Corinth to sort of prove that it's an actual real place, which some people were surprised that the places in the Bible are real places in the world, which is cool. Um, brought a bit of legitimacy to what we read in the Bible. Um, and then today I'm continuing on that series, on the theme, and I'm talking from 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, and the title of my message is The Battle Community versus the Individual. So that's a bit of like a, a catch up for those of you um, who are, might be new to the place um, and uh, yeah, are fresh here. So I guess let me, let me set the table for you before we get into the passage so you guys have a bit of an understanding of where we're coming from. Uh, when you were born, uh, we can all remember that wonderful day, I'm sure, in vivid detail. But when you were born, like, do you care about how your presence impacts the world around you? No. You just scream your little lungs out, do whatever you want, poo whenever you want to want, eat whenever you want, sleep whenever you want to want, uh, do all these things. You seemingly just like run on your own schedules and you just don't care what is happening in the world around you because your world is all about you. You do you with zero regard for anyone else. And people will tell you all these tips and all these tricks uh, to make your baby do what you want it to do. But here's a tip. Don't listen to people who give you tips when you haven't asked for them. There's a parenting tip. And then you become, and then you become a young kid and you sort of, sort of start caring a little bit more about the people around you. You, you develop relationships with people uh, and you start to consider... Uh, like your, how your actions affect other people. But at the end of the day, the majority of your decisions comes from your personal desire to see your needs and your wants fulfilled. Um, kids are great, by the way, um, but uh, I was talking to a mum at school pickup um, just the other week, and I said, kids are really good at showing you all the parts of your character that you need to work on. Like, kids are the ultimate discipleship tool. They'll show you all the places in your life and in your heart that Jesus hasn't fixed yet. Um, but uh, adults, you know, adults on the whole, we, we, we tend to have a bit more room for inconvenience, a bit more freedom for different opinions and different choices. Kids, on the other hand, uh, when you let them know that, no, you will not be leaving the house in the middle of winter, wearing only dance shoes and a headband and no other clothes, then I hope you brought your weapons ready because it's going to get more chaotic than the end times. And then as we get older, you know, we get a little bit more willing to make space for different opinions and different needs, uh, at least a little bit more than toddlers do. And so as we get older, that's sort of what society is at the moment. You know, society mostly still operates on this communal, community-based mindset. But as time has gone on, we've started to see the individual, the one person, promoted more and more. And this is sometimes referred to as individualism. Um, a couple hundred years ago, the French during, uh, after the French Revolution, there was a fear among scholars that this new wave of individualism was going to dramatically change society for the worst. Emile Durkheim, uh, back in the late 1800s, had described this, you know, we've, we've got this mechanical sol solidarity where everyone is so similar that we just sort of connect automatically, and this organic solidarity where we, there's privileges of being in community, so we just join in communities because there's all these benefits to it. But then there was this worry 
that individualism was coming along and it was going to crush the very fabric of community and the community would actually just crumble away and be disconnected into dust in the power of individuality. And so I think, you know, we've seen the rise of the individual, of the solo person today. And in some ways it might be really nice and in some ways it's sort of harmful. Um, like, I remember living in uh, country towns. I grew up in Echuca. My cousin from Echuca is here visiting today. See if you can spot her after the service. Um, but yes, I grew up in a country town of Echuca, and then we went to Aubrey-Wodonga, which are all country towns. And, you know, you, you saw the same people multiple times a week, every single week, because everyone went to the same events and was in the same social circles. There was this community. You didn't have to plan to catch up with people. Can you imagine that, my Melbourne friends? <laughs> I tried to catch up with someone in June, and he told me that it was a bit busy. Can we try again in August? So I'm going to message him this week. We're going to catch up in August. But like, can you imagine not having to organize catching up with people because you see them so many times during the week? Like, you actually had to plan time away from people in the country. It was a delight. And like, I, I miss that community, that interconnectedness, being a part of all the same things. Everyone works together. You're in the community. And then in the same breath, I, I, I'm loving that, that people are more free and feeling more free to express themselves in a way uh, that isn't just all the same. You know, people dress differently to each other. We have different cultures and heritages and, and and mingles of like, you know, you can have your own hobbies and interests and food and sport. Like you get to express yourself differently and creativity is at this all-time high. Um, admittedly, sure, the Melbourne uniform is still a black puffer jacket and black jeans. But you can choose from four different brands of puffer jackets. <laughs> you know, you can go the plain black Mac pack if you want. Sure, uh, you can go the plain black North Face. Good choice. Uh, you can go the plain black Kathmandu, why not? Uh, you can go the plain black Uniqlo, good choice, guys. There's also Super Dry, but oh, come on, who are we kidding? You know, what a time to be alive, diversity. What I'm, like, what I'm getting at here is we're getting into a period of the world where individualism is, is a prioritized and it is highly valued. It is actually becoming a commodity to be an individual. Um, and I don't say that necessarily as a negative thing, but as a, a body of believers, we must weigh up all the seasons and all the changes that culture goes through and not just see if it fits us, but actually see uh, and test it against the word of God and see if it is aligned with God's design for us. And so as we enter into 1 Corinthians um, in the church now, in, when this was written, there is these tensions at play because there are these different types of people who come from different types of opinions and different types of backgrounds and have different types of ways of doing things. Uh, there's people that come with different like previous religious affiliations. And so it's not just like, say, the Jewish people who have come to faith. <laughs> Um, it's all these other belief systems or non-belief systems who are coming into the saving knowledge of Jesus. And so all these differences all of a sudden are brought into the same room. And of course, in time, that brings tension. Tension as people wrestle with what they're allowed to do, 
what they're not allowed to do, what matters, what doesn't matter, what's a sin issue, what's a non-sin issue, what's just a preference issue. And so that's what sort of is this background as we dive into today's passage. Thank you for following me with that. Um, It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and it says this, But you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. For if others see you with your superior knowledge, eating in the temple of an idol, won't they be encouraged to violate their conscience by eating food that has been offered to an idol? So, because of your superior knowledge, a weak believer for whom Christ died will be destroyed. And when you sin against others by uh, when you sin against other believers by encouraging them to do something they believe is wrong, you are sinning against Christ. So if I eat what causes another believer to sin, I will never eat meat again for as long as I live, for I do not want to cause another believer to stumble. All right, let's uh, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we are just so thankful for this service so far. Uh, We're just so thankful that we get to come before you and sing praise, that we get to be ministered to by the the testimony of people who have had a life-changing encounter with you. And as we dig into your word now, I pray that you'll continue to, um, yeah, change our lives and bring us closer to you. In your name, amen. Uh, So first up, I'm just going to clear up a few phrases, uh, a bit of a background stuff, so that we all have like the same idea of what is happening in this passage. So there's talk in this passage about um, food that is offered to idols. So there's a couple factors likely to be at play here, depending on sort of which background you come from. As Gentiles, so non-Jewish people, um, people with a non-Jewish background are just referred to as Gentiles in the Bible. Um, So as Gentiles and then Jewish people come together and they start making the church together, there's different customs and different expectations. Uh, Maybe if you just think in your mind of two families from different backgrounds coming together, joining as one family, um, one might have, uh, you know, strong issues about shoes being taken off at the door and the other one doesn't care. Uh, One might all hold hands while they say grace and the other one doesn't care. One might expect a phone call during Christmas and birthdays and the other one doesn't care. It's all these sort of familial issues and tensions that come together. And in the Greco-Roman world, Idol worship was this very, very normal thing. It sort of happened everywhere in all the big cities. Um, And meat was used in idol worship. Uh, So meat might be sacrificed to idols, and you take your meat to the temple, um, and the priests and the prophets of that god might take some of that meat, and they might sacrifice it, but then they also might take some of that meat and then just take it to the marketplace and sell it at the marketplace. And so this meat is in circulation back into the marketplace. Um, Or some of you might just take your meat to the temple and the priests bless it and then you take your meat back home uh, and you do your thing. You put it in the air fryer and it's ready to go. And so as you are sort of wandering around in these communities, there is meat that is sort of in circulation that has been in some way or another potentially like being part of idol worship, whether it's from the priests sort of taking it and selling it at the marketplace and you going over and buying it from the marketplace or your mum and dad bringing it back home with them after they've visited the temple, and now it's in your stir-fry. Like, it sort of just is there. And it doesn't mean that, you know, even if you yourself weren't participating in idol worship, uh, there's a high chance that the food that you're consuming was connected in some capacity. And now the Jewish people, they had, like, a really strict sort of idea of around food. Um, So the likelihood of those people coming into contact with unclean food was really, really low. They had all these checks, all these balances to make sure that their food stayed clean from like idol worship. 
So unless their local supermarket was a bit dodgy and was sticking on the stickers that said, like, definitely not idle food, when it really was idle food, then the Jewish people were keeping away from unclean, idle, blemished food. Um, even, like, you know, secondhand idle food. And so, you know, some Gentiles rejected the idea that this meat was tainted and they believed that they could eat meat sacrificed to idols uh, without endorsing or participating it. Um, and it's not like they actually offered any of the sacrifices after all. And then there's some Gentiles who still had this really strong connection with idol worship because they went to the temples and they worshipped and they gave the meat. So there's all these sort of different factors at play. And then there's this mention in the passage of a weaker conscience. And this is in reference to people who do not yet fully understand that idols have no power. They're just man-made objects. Maybe they're freshly into the church, they're new believers, and they've just come out of idol worship, uh, and now they're believing in Jesus, but there's this overhang of the stuff that they used to believe and follow. And John D. Barry writes in his commentary, these people might have remained convinced that an entity existed in these idols, and so in their conscience, in their mind, consuming meat that had been sacrificed to idols seemed like idolatry. There's also this phrase in the passage called superior knowledge. Um, and so uh, for superior knowledge, uh, this is for people that fully understand that food offered to idols is just food that's been offered to idols. It's not crazy food, it's not good food, it's not bad food, it's just food because idols have no power. Um, and so you can sort of see the issues that start to arise here, yeah? One group of people is okay with eating food, that they know isn't evil because they themselves are not part of idolatry. Then one group of people do not eat food because of cultural and heritage and familial reasons. And there's, there's a third group of people who are still confused about food because they're new to the game. So you've got one person saying, uh, I'm not doing anything wrong. I can do this all day long. And then you've got one group of people saying, this is a terrible, terrible thing. And historically it's been terrible and we are never doing it. And you've got another group of people saying, I thought it was wrong, but then you're doing it but you're against it, and I don't know what to think. So this is sort of the background. And this is where that world of what is right versus what is wrong, what does God want to do, what does the world tell us to do, sort of begins. And so if you're in this modern-day context, you might hear some words, uh, some thinking along the lines about, well, you know, if it isn't hurting anyone, you know that sort of saying, you know, if it isn't hurting anyone, you do you, boo, um, don't let other people tell you how to live your life. There's a quote I read that said, you know, don't, tell, uh, don't let others tell you how to live your life. Do what makes you happy. Uh, don't allow others to discourage your goals and dreams. Pursue with confidence. Remember, you live your life for you, not them. So this is sort of all these tensions going on, like who, who are we living our life for? Who do we sort of, you know, kowtow to? Who do we bend over to and all this sort of stuff? Should we uh, encourage individuality and people just living their own life against their own belief systems? Or should we encourage community? Or is it even that clean cut? And so I'd like to separate two issues that sort of get blended together here. And one is stumbling, as is written in the passage. And the other one is offense. Um, one thing that this passage is not saving you from is being offended. Uh, it's not saving you from being offended by other people. And this is specifically within the church body. And this passage has been used in regards to trivial, small things that people get offended over. Getting offended over different tastes and different styles of music or different things that your brother and sister likes that you don't like. 
Um, and, but this passage is actually speaking about things that are going to cause you to stumble, things that are, you, you are going to be tempted to do. So, for example, if you were to pick something silly, something trivial that people have lots of opinions about, so maybe someone in the church has dyed hair and crazy color, or wears certain clothing brands, or has tattoos, like, if you don't like tattoos, you are not going to be tempted to get a tattoo. So this passage isn't saving you from different tastes and different, you know, types of things. This passage is actually saying, is there something that you are free to do? But if you do it, it's going to tempt another believer to stumble. And so this is where the battle begins. How far do you take this? What does it cover? Uh, Do I always have to surrender things that are not sinful, but I like doing just to appease all the weak people around me? Where's the line? And I think this is the battle that we'll always be wrestling with until we realize the real question is not about like what I can do and what I cannot do. It's not a battle of what is acceptable and not acceptable, what is preferred and not preferred. The real battle is whether we are moving people towards being a fully fleshed disciple or whether we are creating unnecessary hurdles in their path. And this is where we start to part ways with the world. I'm no longer just responsible for my life. I have an investment in the life of others to the point where scripture gives you a responsibility in their lives. I'm no longer just responsible for my journey with Jesus. I am responsible with how my journey affects other people's journey with Jesus. And you remember the vision of our church. The vision of our church is about making disciples. When your choices begin to affect the discipleship of our brothers and sisters, that is when your freedom starts to become a liability. Um, This will seem very foreign because I don't think anyone here would ever watch The Simpsons because none of us were allowed to watch it when we grew up. But if you were, if you happen to have like accidentally seen it as you're walking past a shop and it was on TV, um, you'll know that there's the two children, Bart and Lisa. Um, Again, we're all very unfamiliar, I'm sure. Um, But there's this one episode where Bart and Lisa are arguing and Bart starts swinging his arms like this. Yeah, he's swinging his arms like this. And he says, I'm going to do this. And if you get hit, then it's your fault. And then Lisa says, well, I'm going to start kicking the air. And if any part of you should fill that air, then it's your fault. And so they start moving together, like towards each other with these actions, saying, I'm just doing this thing, and if it affects you, that's your fault. Like, I'm going to do my thing, and if you get hurt or get in the way, that's your problem because you should get out of the way. I don't need to stop what I'm doing. Uh, There's another, but then there's this other quote uh, attributed to John B. Finch, and it says, my right to swing my fist ends where your nose begins, which is... My right to do something stops when it starts to impact you. My right to operate in freedom from religious laws and requirements ends where your path of discipleship begins. So let me give you a really simple example of what this looks like in real life. You are free to have a drink. And by that, I mean adult drinks, you know, alcohol. You have the freedom to do that. I can't see that being a sin in Scripture. But Rachie, my wife, Rachie and I have two sets of friends, both Christian couples. Uh, One couple, so this is real world examples, one couple does not drink at all. And that's a personal choice that they have made. 
We know their extended families, we know their, like, their family history, and we know that there isn't any big reason for them not to drink other than personal choice. Uh, and so we have no issue with having wine or something like that within the presence of this couple, because their preference is not to drink, but they are not tempted to drink because they do not have issues with drinking in their family or their family history. It's just a matter of preference for them, and it is not a stumbling block. But then we have this other couple that we also know, and they do drink. And in their family, there's family history with alcohol issues, both the couple themselves and their immediate and their extended family that we are very aware of. And they would definitely not mind if we had wine with them because they would definitely join in. But in doing so, we are not only tempting them, but we are inviting them into a very real and current weakness in their discipleship. And so it is not just a matter of preference for them. It is a stumbling block that we are putting in their way. And so, sorry, here's where I sort of want us to move our heads into. As a people who are explicitly concerned about making disciples, we should be building a community of people who are explicitly aware of how our actions are affecting the discipleship of other people. And I don't want to say this as a a socially-minded lefty who's going to become a doormat for everyone to walk over. I'm saying this as someone who's reading the Bible and seeing how seriously God takes our discipleship. Verse 12, it says, And when you sin against another believer by encouraging them to do something that they believe is wrong, you are sinning against Christ. It took me a little while to understand the weight of this this phrase. But this verse implies here that Jesus views what is being done to his people as the same thing as being done to him. You are sinning against Christ. In, in Acts 9, 1-5, um, Paul is, uh, in, in this passage, it says, Meanwhile, Paul, or Saul, I should say, was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation to arrest any follower of the way, so any believer in Jesus that he found there. He wanted to bring them in, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. So Paul, or Saul, was going to the churches, arresting, killing some Christians. And as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. This bit. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord, Saul said, and the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Saul was persecuting Christians, and Jesus came to him in a vision saying, why are you persecuting me? God takes the health of his children personally, and so should we. Because when you put an unnecessary stumbling block in front of a fellow believer, You are not just sinning against them, but you are pushing back on the work that Christ is doing in them. You are fighting back against the work that Jesus wants to accomplish in their lives. So this is not just a big discussion of what we can and cannot do. This is a discussion of whether we are actively working for or against what God is doing in a person's life. David Frederick writes this. Um, He says, We should be aware of each other's stumbling blocks, which are ways that people can be led back into destructive sin patterns. And this only happens when we are humble, care about each other's lives, and are in deep community with our church. A good step forward would be to get to know people in the church at a deeper level, 
If you, uh, you do not know how you may unintentionally lead someone to stumble if you do not know their story and the life that God has redeemed them from. He continues, he continues, be willing to lay down your rights and your freedoms. Paul gives us a powerful example of his willingness to not eat meat if it would cause someone around him to stumble. Is there someone in your life so dear to you that you would not give it up if it caused someone around you to stumble? If so, that thing may not be a freedom that you have in Christ, but rather it is an idol that is controlling you. None of these application steps are simple, but each one of them leads you to deeper unity in the body of Christ as we consider each other's interests more important than our own. So I want to finish with this bit. Clayton Church is changing. New people are coming through our doors every week. People with different experiences, people with different backgrounds, people with different stages of knowing and following Jesus. And I, for one, am like so excited about where we are headed. But we won't get anywhere significant if we don't go together. And we won't go there together if we don't care for each other genuinely care and truly, truly love. There's that famous African proverb that's probably made up, but if you want to go quickly, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. What does that mean for us then? Well, I think the answer is both simple and vague. We are not in a battle of individual versus community. What I want versus what you want We are in a battle of what God is saving people to versus what God has saved people from. And if we are serious about building disciples who represent Jesus to everyone, everywhere, with everything, then we need to be serious about the sin and the idols that will destroy the work of God in someone's life. If I love God, then I need to love God's people. And if I love God's people, then I must be willing to show my love by my actions. I wonder if you can imagine the long-term impacts that you could have, not just on the individual, but the community of Clayton Church, when we, in humility and in love, start to understand and start to know each other's stories. We start to understand the part that we play in the discipleship journey. Pastor Chi last week shared a glimpse of what our future could look like if we stay true to God's calling and if we move together. And this is a place where your investment into people will always pay returns. And I really hope that we can all journey further together. I might finish it there. Thanks, guys.